Lieutenant Governor Mike Kehoe made a name for himself both as a successful car dealer and as a member of the Missouri Senate. But after being appointed to a statewide post in 2018, Kehoe is embarking on his first statewide campaign against Democrat Alicia Kennedy. Will the state of Missouri love a Mike Kehoe deal? Kehoe himself will make the case for his election on the latest episode of Politically Speaking. Let's hit the music. This is the Politically Speaking podcast, the definitive show about Missouri politics. It's a little complicated in Bolivar because there is a Parsons family there. But we also knew that it was important to make sure that that we got to where we needed to go. You know if you walk in a room and you're getting ready to make a decision and everybody in the room looks like you, you need to stop. And right now what happens in the United States Senate is as critical as anywhere else in the country. I really want the state to succeed. We want everybody to uh, know that we're all working together. I just worked hard to try to build my name where I didn't have the money. And welcome to Politically Speaking. I'm your host, St. Louis Public Radio political correspondent, Jason Rosenbaum. Joining me via Zoom is St. Louis Public Radio's State House reporter, Jacqueline Driscoll. And our special guest today, the Lieutenant Governor of the great state of Missouri. Mike Kehoe. Thank you very much. We're recording this from Dave Sinclair in St. Peter's, uh, which is an appropriate venue because uh, Lieutenant Governor Kehoe was a very famous car dealer before he got into Missouri politics. And I think you got your start at Dave Sinclair many years ago. Is that I correct? Did. Mr. Sinclair was uh, my mentor, uh, my my male role model. My, uh, my father left our family when I was a year old, so I never met him. So... Mr. Sinclair was a big uh, factor to our family, and um, it's proud to be here and uh, interview at one of his stores. Well, thank you for your time. And just for, just for our listeners, in case we sound slightly muffled, both the lieutenant governor and I are wearing masks during this interview um, because we are indoor. And you may also hear some announcements because we're in a car dealership. We're in a working business, and that's what Missouri's all about. So why have you decided to run for a full four-year term as lieutenant governor? Well, you know... I was, as you all know, we were uh, term limited out in our Missouri Senate seat when Governor Parson called and asked me to uh, take on the role of lieutenant governor. And really, in my mind, in my family's mind, we were pretty much ready to get out of politics and back into small business. We also have a cattle operation, uh, agriculture operation down in Phelps County. We were ready to do all that. And when Mike called and asked me to take this role on, I said, I'll do this. But there was never I thought that this was a for sure, you know, next step. But um, after we got involved with the Parsons, uh, Claudia and Teresa are very close. And Mike and I have been together on many issues in the Senate, and including when he was lieutenant governor, I was a floor leader. Uh, we just felt a passion for what we were seeing out in Missouri as we traveled the state and met people all across the state. I knew a lot about Missouri from my days in the Highway Commission, et cetera. But once you go out and travel as a statewide uh, office holder, uh, you really hear some incredible stories. So a lot of successes and some failures, some challenges families have. And the more we heard about that, the more we got involved with our veterans community, our Buy Missouri program, the tourism community, the more I thought there was a space for somebody who had a small business background, who started from very humble roots as I did, uh, to make an impact in Missouri. And so, yes, we decided to run uh, for a full four-year term. So you talked a little bit about Buy Missouri there. You just uh, kind of mentioned it, and this was something that I wanted to ask about. I am, as 
many of our listeners are very aware, I am new to Missouri. I'm now a year in, but could you just talk a little bit about Buy Missouri and why it's so important, particularly this year, um, with the economic effects of COVID-19? Sure. Well, Buy Missouri is a great program. It was started by then Lieutenant Governor Mike Parson. And as Lieutenant Governor Mike Parson came to me as a senator and told me all about the program, he knew I was a big proponent and fan of Missouri small businesses and said, you know, you need to sponsor legislation that would start by Missouri Week and uh, shameless self-plug that starts uh, this Saturday, October the uh, 12th, right? Um, And so uh, by Missouri Week starts October 12th and runs for a week. But so I sponsored that resolution in the Senate that passed in the House and we're going to have that not knowing we were going to get to this point in time. But why Buy Missouri is so important, uh, the concept was to let Missourians know through buymissouri.net, that's another plug, buymissouri.net, to let Missourians know what products are made in the state. Because what we find out is if somebody knows windows are made in Missouri for their home and they're remodeling or building a new home, they might look at a Missouri window manufacturer before they look at some of the other manufacturers. If somebody wants to buy a Craftsman or Cobalt toolbox, they might look at a toolbox that's made in Pettis County versus a toolbox it's not. If somebody wants to buy whatever it is of our now 340 Buy Missouri companies, a lot of times we find Missourians will spend money and buy something that's made in our state. And from an economic standpoint, it's so much better when Missourians take the money that they earn and then spend it with a company that's here because it helps those Missourians stay employed. The the ripple effect of the dollar within a state's border is so much greater than when the dollar is spent outside of our border. So we think it makes great sense economically. It's free for companies to join. There's no charge. Uh, We aren't the government that gets involved with their business. We simply help promote their business and let Missourians know what's all made Missouri. And uh, it's a great program. I'm very passionate about it. We're going to continue to expand it. How how well do you think the program is going to go? I know that Governor Mike Parson came out recently and talked about how well uh, Missouri is rebounding um, in light of the coronavirus. But I was also interested to know, you know, do you foresee any difficulties uh, because of COVID-19 with the Buy Missouri program? Yeah, I mean, Buy Missouri has companies of all sizes. So we literally have one and two person companies that are Buy Missouri. We have companies that have 1,200 employees. And so depending on the size of the company, different sizes of companies have had different challenges. But the great thing about small businesses all around the country, including in Missouri, is they learn how to adapt and they learn how to adapt to a situation. So uh, an assembly factory that's a Buy Missouri company, for instance, they're taking COVID precautions, temperature checks, uh, frequent sometimes testing, uh, mask wearing, et cetera. Smaller, what I would call, or somebody would call a mom and pop store, they may be adapting some, but not, not as much. Uh, we're finding many by Missouri companies now are getting stronger with their online presence because of COVID, because maybe their customers aren't comfortable coming into their place of business. So I would tell you that the effect of COVID initially, like any business in this country and in this world back in March and April, was significant on our economy and all of our businesses. But as we start to figure out how to deal with COVID, how to do things safely, how to protect our customers and our employees, et cetera, uh, I think the Buy Missouri companies have rebounded. And several companies, by the way, are making PPE. So that's been kind of an additional uh, nice piece to this is we've had companies that are Buy Missouri companies and non-Buy Missouri companies, in all fairness, that have switched their manufacturing process to help with our PPE supply chain. And that's been really rewarding to see that happen. I 
was really intrigued as I was reading just because Jason and I are nerds and we love to just like read about the candidates and and, um, the campaigning. But your libertarian opponent has said if elected, his first move would be to abolish the position of lieutenant governor altogether and give the money back to taxpayers. Now, to me, maybe just because I'm you know, a political junkie now, and I just can't foresee how that would even look. It seems like a really radical idea um, or an extreme idea. Um, But when you think about it, the lieutenant governor position in many cases is often a position that doesn't get a lot of attention outside of when Mike Parson became the governor. So is that a totally out there idea? Why do you see this position as an important one for the state? Well, I think it's important for citizens to know that there is a chain of command if something were unfortunately to happen. And you could argue, well, you could pick somebody else to pro tem, the speaker, et cetera, to maybe be that person. But I think Missourians want to know, in in every state, to my knowledge, that has a lieutenant governor, they want to know who the person is that would uh, be in charge should something happen. But the other real reason that I would say is that We have two very strong, really three very strong advocacy positions in lieutenant governor's office, and I'll rank them in importance to me. Uh, Number one is advocacy for our veterans community. Number two is a veterans uh, advocacy for our seniors community. And number three is advocacy for our tourism industry, which is the second largest industry in our state. So if you don't have a lieutenant governor's position and you just say, well, something happens to the governor, we'll let the president pro tem, you put a constitutional amendment out to pick whoever the next person in charge would be, that person then really would not have the ability to advocate for some of those groups. And I would tell you, taking care of our uh, 460,000 plus veterans is one of the most important things we can do for our heroes, the men and ladies who have worked and saved and and, and blood, sweat, and tears to uh, protect our freedom. I take that very, very uh, seriously. And then our seniors community, uh, just now, like during COVID, you know, we've had, uh, as we know, the senior uh, community is uh, some of the more vulnerable population with COVID. So working with the Health and Human Services Department and uh, working with the uh, nursing home community on how to open back up visitations, which we just published in the last 10 days. Uh, those types of things. And then tourism. Tourism got their teeth kicked in during COVID. I'd hate to think there wasn't somebody advocating out there to get Missouri's tourism industry back up and going again. So those advocacy positions, I think, are very important for this particular office. Not because I'm here. Whoever that person would be. I don't care if it's Roger Wilson or you know Mike Parson or whoever, Peter Kinder, whoever it might have been. I think it's important to have those advocacy positions. I think it's interesting you mentioned uh, tourism because there's been some articles about how some federal money has come to the state to promote Missouri tourism. And I think that's been somewhat controversial just because it's not been recommended for people to travel during COVID. I don't think that was necessarily your doing, but can you like explain why that's necessary? Because some on its face, people may be like, why should there be money for tourism during a pandemic, basically? Yep. Missouri has many, I think, uh, almost 20 DMOs, so direct marketing or district marketing organizations that promote tourism. Um, in St. Louis, it would be Explore St. Louis. In Kansas City, it would be Visit Kansas City. Columbia has a DMO. Springfield has DMOs. So those organizations promote the products and services and the assets they have within their particular area. It doesn't necessarily mean that they're saying, we have a St. Louis Convention and Visitors Bureau, we want you to be unsafe and come from New York and visit us. It could be we are a St. Louis Convention and Visitors Bureau, and we want you to come from Sullivan County down to see what we have in St. Louis. So 
interstate marketing, what we've concentrated on the Tourism Commission and what those DMOs are using those federal grant dollars for, is to promote the assets within our states to people that are closest to us. Because I hope someday we get through this because the airline industries are also getting killed. But people want to drive right now. They're more comfortable driving. And so promoting trips that are not that far away, whether it's from Illinois or Iowa or Arkansas or Kansas, uh, to where they can drive to some of our great destin- uh, destinations, I think that's an opportunity for folks to be able to do that. And all of those DMOs and our tourism operators have worked really hard to create safety standards. Matter of fact, we created a safety standard with a group of volunteer folks out of our tourism commission along with the governor's show me recovery plan uh, to make sure that their employees and customers that visit those destinations would be safe. And so I think it's appropriate to continue to promote that tourism piece. And I I mean, I hear this from Jason all the time, right? When he needs a minute, he goes and he takes a drive into rural Missouri where he can see something that he can't and, you know, where he lives in St. Louis. But just to kind of, you know, wrap up this topic, but, you know, when the governor announced that he was going to designate some CARES Act funding towards tourism, um, he mentioned that a lot of the emphasis would be placed on like the state parks or things that, you know, people could do outside now that the weather is, you know, it, it was in the summer where the weather was um, more enjoyable. Is that still the idea? And how does it work now that we're transitioning into fall and the winter months when people likely, you know, don't want to walk through a state park? Well, I would maintain that uh, folks are so tired of being trapped up no matter what the weather is, uh, short of a hurricane or rain. I think they're going to be outside even through the winter months. Uh, But um, you're definitely right, Jacqueline. As, uh, As winter comes, the outdoor activities are not as great. But we've also had some time for those indoor facilities to put certain safety measures in place to encouraging, you know, safely visiting, maybe limiting the number of people that come inside some of those enclosed facilities, uh, certainly have the right safety precautions in place for the employees and the customers. And so it's given us some time to get those safety measures in place. So while the summer people were visiting places outdoor, those facilities were getting ready to operate in a safe condition for indoor to the extent they can. Uh, And, you know, so tourism in Missouri is typical to the weather. We don't have as many visitors in the winter month as we do in the summer month, you know, kind of maybe opposite of what a a Colorado might see or something like that. But I did want to mention that 301,000 Missourians are directly employed by the tourism industry. I mean, this is a big industry for Missouri families. And so it's important that we keep those industries going, whether it's a state facility like a state park or it's a privately owned tourism attraction. Uh, This is a huge employment driver for our state, an economic driver, and so it's important that we continue to make sure we do the best we can to keep those facilities open and running. We'll be right back after this short break with Lieutenant Governor Mike Kehoe. And we're back on Politically Speaking with Lieutenant Governor Mike Kehoe. I want to go back to Jacqueline's question about the importance of the Lieutenant Governor's office. And I think we saw this a couple weeks ago when Governor Parson came down with COVID-19. While part of the job of being Lieutenant Governor is to serve on a bunch of boards and commissions and to advocate for various facets of Missouri, they also have to be prepared to become governor. And the first thing that sparked, I'm very glad, by the way, that Governor Parson has recovered, as well as Teresa Parson. And it seems that uh, Governor Parson's COVID-19 situation, he didn't really have any symptoms. And we should be grateful for that. But the first thing that popped into my mind when that happened was, 
you could have become governor if it was serious. So my question for you, and I asked your opponent a similar question, why do you feel like you would be ready to become governor if, God forbid, Governor Parson died, resigned, got an appointment somewhere, or was no longer governor anymore? Well, first of all, I would tell you if Mike and Teresa were on this podcast, they would thank Missourians for praying for them and keeping them in their thoughts and prayers. Uh, Claudia talked to Teresa regularly. She never had much more than a cold. Mike was largely asymptomatic. So uh, I know that the Parsons were grateful for the amount of people that reached out to them, and, and, and uh, they sincerely mean that from their heart, and we are, Claudia and I are as well. Uh, but why we th- would think we're ready for governor is that Mike and I have worked very, very closely together, uh, together in the Senate. Uh, as I mentioned, when he was lieutenant governor, I was the Senate floor leader. And as you know, Jason, uh, those two positions work very, very closely together. We have to pretty much understand what you, each other are doing. And then since he's been governor, uh, he has said all along that the number one thing he can tell any lieutenant governor, whether it's me or any lieutenant governor across the United States, and he has come and spoke to National Lieutenant Governor's Conference, Democrats and Republicans, and said the same thing. You need to communicate with your governor, and you need to have a plan. You need to be ready. And so he advocates for that strong second position that would understand, should God forbid something happen, the citizens of the state and the work that the state does goes on as least interrupted as possible. So Mike has been very good when he traveled to Europe last summer. Uh, As you know, he signed over a declaration with the Secretary of State. That hasn't happened in over 20 years to put the authority and the powers in me of the governor's office. Uh, we very much knew what each other were going to be doing. It's not Kinder like never a, got that opportunity under uh, Blunt? Under Blunt, I think, one time. But I'm not sure that we're told the Secretary of State didn't sign off on it, and I don't know that we anybody's ever We don't have to get into that. Semant, but I under, it's been it, a long time. It's been a while. It's, it's been, been a, a very long time. And uh, But, you know, so I wasn't going to go call up the National Guard or something without Mike knowing about it. But So we had it kind of coordinated. But the, the point is, is that Mike wants to do everything he can to make sure that I'm ready um, should something happen. And uh, we, none of us want anything to happen, but it wouldn't be a, a good planning if you just sat around saying, I hope nothing happens. It, it better planning to be prepared and never have to use it. I'm, I'm also really intrigued by this idea that um, the lieutenant governor and the governor could be from opposite parties because, you know, as, as um, many people know, I'm from Illinois. They run on the same ticket. So, you know, whoever is elected governor, it's, you know, they're a pair. So I, I know that the Parson-Galloway race is one of the few gubernatorial races that is fairly competitive um, in the nation. So I, I, I'm interested to know if somehow you were to be elected lieutenant governor and um, Nicole Galloway were to get the governor's seat, how would you work together? And how would you work? You, you obviously, you know, Parson and Galloway have very different priorities. Um, I'm assuming that you and you and Parson have very similar priorities. So how would that work? What would the dynamic be? Well, first of all, I'd have to say that um, it's my hope, and I'll work as hard as I can to help Governor Parson continue to be governor. Uh, if you want to play that scenario out, if Nicole Galloway were to win, um, I think the worst thing that Missourians uh, think of politicians is the you know just getting locked down because of political parties. And uh, I think you can ask any of my colleagues in the Senate, whether they're Republicans or Democrats, that I'm not a guy who drives, draws lines in the sand. And so I'm always going to try to work, even though we might disagree on some philosophy and execution of things. I'm going to continue to work with whoever I have to work with for the best of Missourians. I, I don't 
I'm not in this job because I want to be a politician, quite frankly. I'm in this job because Missouri's been incredibly good to my family and I, and I feel like this is an extension of community service to give back. And I think it would be sad if you had that relationship where the governor and lieutenant governor just locked up, because I don't think you're doing the best for Missourians. I don't think you're doing the best for the, for the groups you're supposed to advocate for. And so um, should that happen, I will do my best to certainly work with whoever the governor is. But uh, once again, uh, I think Mike Parson has taken us in a good direction, and uh, it's my hope and prayer that uh, he continues to do that. I want to talk about an issue that has finally been resolved, and we talked a lot about this on the last time you were on the show, and that's low-income housing tax credits. By the time we're recording this show, which is October 9th, uh, the state low-income housing tax credits have been switched back on. I think it was a unanimous vote of the Missouri Housing Development Commission, which you sit on, by the way. Is That's that correct. Mm -hmm. This was a really long saga that, honestly, a lot of observers thought uh, the, the tax credit would have been turned on sooner. But it seems like there was some compromises about like how it's going to be allocated differently than before. Uh, how did you come to that compromise? What are some of the changes, and why do you think it's a good thing for it to be back? Well, sure. So, so for instance, just for our listeners to reflect back on, um, low-income housing tax credits was started by a president named Ronald Reagan uh, back in the 80s who said government really doesn't know how to operate anything right. If you look in St. Louis, you look at Pruitt-Igoe, some federal housing there. And so he created the the partnership, uh, kind of a 3P partnership before that term was popular, to take private entities and have them help with low-income housing through tax credits. As you know, there's also federal tax credits uh, that we've mainly been operating on, and many states have a state tax credit program. So that's how everything got started. Uh, Governor Greitens, under his administration, felt like the tax credits were somewhat out of control. Uh, I would agree that I think uh, uh, low-income housing tax credits were a little bit out of control. And so there were uh, multiple pieces of legislation that the House and Senate, as you know, over the last three or four years worked on to kind of try to rein those in to give a better value on the dollar to Missourians. At one point in time, uh, low-income housing tax credits were only given 42 cents on every dollar return that we were investing. That's a bad investment. And, and there's I'm, some debate over that, but we're I, not going yeah, to yeah, go into yeah, that. Let's just say it wasn't a great return on investment. Let's not get caught in the exact numbers. Yes. Uh, so we'll, what uh, the House and Senate have both worked on, Senator Hageman for sure on our side and multiple House members on their side, is how do we do some things that give it a little bit better return? Not to get caught in the exact number, but how do we get a little bit better return and also provide that low-income housing that's needed? If you look in uh, Missouri, central Missouri, we had an unbelievable tornado where we had lots of housing units taken out. Look at the flooding that we've had up and down the river. I mean, the need for affordable housing is as much as ever. And so with that three-year spigot turned off, the need was still there. We just weren't providing any inventory. So the governor uh, got together with the, uh, the low-income housing uh, team as well as House and Senate members and said, let's turn these on, but let's do it in a responsible way, mirroring even, even a little bit more conservative than the last bill that passed out of the Senate, which was 72.5% of the federal uh, tax credit program. Governor turned it back on at 70%. Uh, Treasurer Fitzpatrick had some positions that he felt were um, valuable, and he's a very smart guy, by the way, uh, to help get our return up on investment on that. Incorporated a few of his positions, and we turned them on in a what we think is a very conservative, good way for Missourians. Um, so, interestingly, in 2019, Governor Parsons said, I'm not going to turn the program back on unless the legislature does something. The legislature did not pass anything. 
to be fair to the governor, he did not make that same declaration in 2020. And you could make an argument that he gave the legislature two years, they didn't pass anything. Eventually you have to make a decision. But with that as a backdrop, do you have any concern that a lack of legislative action on this means that you, you made changes to the program through the MHDC that could just be undone, like, after the election, basically. Well, I mean, I think the House and Senate could always take up legislation that would um, alter, change, or solidify whatever words fit the legislation they would pick. I would tell you that members, key members of both the House and Senate were very much in, involved in this conversation going forward. So I think the governor's attempt was try to make it as close to what was almost passed in both chambers, which all of them had tons of input, committee hearings on, public input, et cetera, uh, to mirror about what was out there. And certainly in the next session, if the House and Senate feels like there needs to be more tweaking or tuning or something needs to be codified in statute, I'm sure that's something that they'll take up if they feel it's needed. So in the last few minutes, let's talk about the impending campaign. This is your first time you've run statewide before. You've run for a state Senate seat twice, a very Republican state Senate seat. Um, you know, what? I was flipping through my phone because I was looking at the primary results, which were you basically based against two perennial candidates, including one named Mike Carter, who actually won several counties. Uh, my assumption is he, he may have unleashed his flood of robocalls, and that may have been why he got a lot of percentage points. But some may be like, that wasn't a super impressive showing by an, an incumbent lieutenant governor. What do you have to? What, what happened in the primary, in your opinion? Uh, I think it. You know, we were fortunate uh, to have the trust of Missourians to win the primary. Number one, um, we ran a very strategic campaign. We knew where we needed to be uh, with our message, and we we did have our message out there. We have a great grassroots network. Uh, Mr. Carter, I talked to him the night of the election. He called to congratulate me uh, and then offered me his robocall services, by the way, because he does have an incredible uh, effort to, and ability to put out robocalls. Uh, I guess my campaign people get mad at me because I'm not a fan of robocalls. It just drives me crazy like most people do. But they can be very effective. And you saw him in certain uh, smaller rural counties where I didn't have any name ID. He didn't have any name ID. We were both named Mike. Uh, you know, so because I'm looking uh, at this map right now, like he won like Carter County and a couple of northern Missouri counties. But, you know, I, I think he might have just unleashed a bunch of robocalls in those communities. Or he, something. he did. And I and, you know, he had a strategy and uh, he uh, actually I'm not saying anything he didn't brag about on Facebook. He never left his couch and he uh, won some of those counties. So. We were trying to do it the other way. We were grassroots out traveling the counties. Uh, my wife and I are very much involved in all of 114 counties. And, uh, you know, so uh, he had a, a strategy that uh, he implemented. Fortunately, our strategy uh, produced the, the winning results. Yeah, you did win. I want to make that clear. Yeah. And I don't think it was really that close. But I just wanted to mention that because it was kind of humorous. Uh, every time, anytime you talk about robocalls, it's kind of a funny topic. It is. It is. So you're running against former Kansas City Council woman Alicia Kennedy. She was on the show earlier. She made her case about why she should become lieutenant governor. Uh, why do you think that people should vote for, 
for you instead of her? Well, I think uh, I've never met Miss Kennedy. I've heard a lot about her, um, and so I'm sure she's a good person. I know she's uh, served Kansas City as a city councilwoman. Uh, but I think I have a unique set of uh, Missouri values. Uh, born and raised in inner city St. Louis, so Walnut Park in the Baden neighborhood for the St. Louis folks that know. About half my life in the St. Louis metro area, and then the other half of my life in more rural Missouri, Jefferson City, and then our farm down outside of Rolla. Uh, I think both of those uh, kind of combination of, uh, I understand the rural and agricultural way of life, which is our number one industry, and I also stun- understand the urban challenges that we've seen. Uh, And I'm in this job not because I need a job, because I really do think my wife and I and my family, we agree that this is a way for us to continue to give back to a state that's just been so very good to us. And I think that uh, if folks vote for me, they're going to understand I'm kind of, you know, I am who I am. You're going to, you know, what you get is what you see. uh, And I'm going to be square with them. It's a, a small business background, 35 years in small business. Uh, father of four, uh, Christian faith, a very practicing uh, Christian faith. So we think we, we mirror the values of what Missourians seem to want and expect out of their government the most, uh, and we certainly continue to uh, carry on those values. So a lot of these down-ballot races tend to uh, dovetail with the national environment. Um, to, to be fair, though, it's difficult. It's very rare in Missouri for somebody who is in office in a down ballot slot to lose an election. Susan Monte did in 2010, but it's it's a challenge. But what I'm looking at right now in the national environment, on October 9th, things could change. President Trump is down on average 10 points in the popular vote nationally. There are polls showing Missouri could be a much closer presidential state than 2016. I don't think Biden is going to win, but I've seen some polls saying he's only down five or six, and that could make some of these down-ballot races a a lot closer. How do you think the national environment is going to affect a contest like yours? Well, listen, first of all, I would say when it comes to the president, in 2016, I think he was down in 91 out of 93 polls. So polling and the average Trump voter is very, very hard to find him. I've never seen the enthusiasm in Missouri that I've seen for Donald Trump. It's been incredible. So I think the numbers, when they show him as close, um, I, my guess is because it's just hard to find his, his uh, to, to, find, to find his supporters out there who actually answer the poll call, I think his numbers are going to be much higher in Missouri than everyone thinks. Uh, Governor Parson seems to be tracking well. I think his message and his record has done well. So that always is good for all the down-ballot uh, folks that are behind them. And we feel like uh, Missouri is a red state. It's going to continue to be red. Uh, we're a family value state that's Christian, pro-life, and pro-gun, uh, Second Amendment. Uh, those are obviously the values that we represent and we're going to continue to represent. One final question, uh, just because state legislative reporter over here, but you preside over the Missouri Senate, which means in a way you are essentially the liaison between the legislative and executive branches. Um, if you are to be elected to a full term of lieutenant governor, what are some priorities that you would like to see addressed next session? Well, sure. I think the priorities that we started on uh, under the Parson administration are ones that we need to continue to build on. Uh, I think as Jason knows and Jacqueline, you might, they might have been born when I was back on the Highway Commission, but I'm very 
very uh, I'm very passionate about Missouri's infrastructure, as the governor is as well. Infrastructure during COVID has taken on a different, little bit different look, in that we've concentrated probably more on high-speed broadband access as part of our infrastructure conversation. But getting back to that traditional road and bridge infrastructure, utility infrastructure, I think that's an important piece that we need to continue to push. Our workforce development, we've made great strides in working with community colleges and higher education schools, as well as our high schools on our workforce development challenges. And I think Missouri is in a great position to continue to expand business and have Missourians uh, get the jobs they want and need to provide for their family. So I want to continue to advocate for that. And then agriculture, it's our number one industry. I'm in the agriculture business. Uh, we have a lot of opportunities ahead of us in agriculture, and I think uh, continuing to pursue how Missouri can continue to grow its family farms and provide opportunities to literally clothe and feed the world, I think is an important piece that we'll continue to advocate for in the legislature. Well, Governor, thank you so much for your time. As I mentioned, uh, as I alluded to before, if you want to listen to the show with Alicia Kennedy, that's on our website at stlpublicradio.org. You can find all of our stories at stlpublicradio.org and follow me on Twitter at Jay Rosenbaum. Jacqueline, how can people follow you on Twitter? At DriscollNPR. And how can people follow you either on Twitter or learn more about your platform on your campaign website? Sure, it's MikeKehoe.com, MikeKehoe.com, and our Twitter is at MikeLKehoe. And I think, Jason, you and Eli Yokely might have helped me set that Twitter account I, up I, at 2 in the morning. I'm pretty sure that we did. Yeah, I'm so. responsible for a lot of Twitter accounts. Mm. I, I am the father of Missouri political Twitter. You are. And I, I, I thank you for it. I have a lot of Twitter power. Old guys like me need young people like you two to help us through social media. So thank you. You're welcome. And until next time, so long. <laughs>